0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of boutique consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys, some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrelo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com. Or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign up offer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. Now, as we all know, there are countless consultancies out there that claim to do things differently. And in reality, when you break it down, there aren't actually that many who genuinely break the mold, but today's guest and his firm truly do. Simon Dixon, who I had the pleasure of speaking to for this episode, founded Hatmill in 2009, having become disenfranchised with the traditional consulting model and starting Hatmill with the belief that there must be a better way of doing things. Since then Hatmill has grown to become the UK's leading logistics consultancy and the UK's top small company to work for according to Great Place to Work. Not bad for a firm that has done the complete opposite of everything that you are told to do when running a consultancy. In this episode Simon and I do something a little different to my regular interviews as we go deep into the business model that has enabled Hatmill's success. Unlike many of my episodes where we talk about stories and lessons and journeys, this one is a chance to probe, challenge, and tease out why the Hatmill business model works. And Simon was very kind in being a participant to this. And as you'll hear in today's interview, I think it's fair to say he gave as good as he got. We cover so much in this conversation, and there are so many gems. If you are looking at alternative ways to structure and grow your consultancy. We talk about why Hatmill is focused around self-managed teams and those key tenants that underpin their unique model. We talk about why Hatmill doesn't have any grades or any promotions and why this is fundamental to their success. We discuss their unique approach to reviews and how their peer-based appraisal system works we talk all about actually how they keep it fair how they keep it balanced and how they do all of this without line managers overseeing everything and finally we talk about potentially the elephant in the room but simon's got a great view on it which is why they have a ceo in a world without grades something that i'm sure you're going to want to find out the answer to if you like hearing about new ways to run your consultancy, new perspectives, fresh ideas, this is a conversation I know you are going to love. So if you are ready, strap in, get out your notebook, and please enjoy this deep dive into Hatmill's business model with Simon Dixon. Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, obviously, we've just spent a good hour and a half chatting over lunch, trying to avoid as much as I can about the Hatmill business model because I didn't want to have the same conversation or make you have the same conversation twice. But thank you for coming all this way, firstly. You're very welcome. So, for those who maybe don't know you, just so we can place yourself, place Hatmill before we dive into everything, could you give a short overview on who you are and how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, sure. So, career wise, I left uni and joined ASDA on their logistics graduate scheme in the mid nineties, which sadly seems a long time ago when you say it nowadays. Did about four or five years at ASDA and and I guess probably did my apprenticeship in logistics. Learned a hell of a lot through being given some great opportunities. It was a, a fantastic time to be part of that business. Then got an eye for doing projects more than running operations. So... Operations is great and you you need to know operations, but you get to a point where actually watching boxes come in and watching boxes go out every day, if it's going well, on the rare days it does go well, can seem a little dull. And I'd had the opportunity to do some great projects like build new distribution centers and things like that. And that sort of wet my appetite for the uh, a project type environment. So then worked on leaving Asda, went into consultancy, worked for a, a relatively small consultancy straight after that. For about four years, we had some interesting projects on uh, railways and London Underground, looking at those logistics challenges and, uh, of renewals. Then joined PwC, spent four years there, generally being the go-to person for logistics uh, at that time in their consulting division. And then thought, I can probably have a go at doing this on my own. And uh, and left there and set up Hat Mill, but set up Hat Mill in the in sense of, I needed a name to call a self-employed business with no ambition of what Hat Mill would eventually become and continues to be. So, um, yes, I just left there to sort of become self-employed and then I guess, you know, three or four years in, got some opportunities, were saying no to them and then sort of reflecting when actually let's start saying yes uh, to the opportunities that are coming in and see where it takes us. And I guess in, in some respects you could argue that we're still doing that now and saying yes to opportunities that come our way. But Hatmill effectively is now the largest logistics consultancy in the UK. We've just incorporated in the US and uh, the Netherlands. So it's sort of and largely through demand from customers to, you know, can we go and help them do projects in those territories? So, uh, yes, yeah, so it's um, it, it's sort of taken off quite nicely, I think is a, probably the best way to describe it.
0: That is quite a journey. And like you say, being the largest in your space is no mean feat.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's always difficult to know for, for certain because no one, you know, it's not like we all publish. Numbers and things, but if I think if you look at sort of broad headcounts or by LinkedIn and things like that, we're at sixty plus employed heads now in, in, in Hatmill. Another sort of fifteen or twenty associates that we use from time to time, or or a lot, depending on on how it's going. So uh, yeah, I think it's, um, it's it's quite pleasing.
0: Amazing. Well, and uh, that's great to hear, and I, I think sets the scene really nicely for where we're going to go. Because particularly for regular listeners, I guess I give this more of a sort of preface or preface is. Usually we'll explore a lot of chronology, but today we're going to get quite into the weeds on your business model. We're going to talk in a minute actually just to set the scene for people because your business is structured in a way that is not the norm to to our conversation at lunch. That's just because there is a norm and it's different, but we're going to touch on that and then dive into those things. I'm also, as, as we talked about, going to try and be a little more challenging and channel my sceptical listeners, because consultants are sceptical folk, and I don't want people here thinking that it's all rosy and it's all easy, so I'm going to try and channel them. But I think maybe to start that piece off, Simon, I mean, like, you talked about, look, you'd been at PwC, you'd seen the kind of the way consulting was done in big firms. You'd been at a smaller firm, you'd seen that, you'd seen how industry was done. So you had all of these ideas. And it it sounds like when you were setting up, you know, that hat mill where you were actually becoming a consultancy, so that three years in, you, you kind of said, we're going to throw all of this out. And I know one of the big founding principles was, you know, we're not having grades, we're not having promotion. So maybe, could you start just unpacking why was that, and maybe set the scene for our listeners on, you know, how that, I guess started the business that you've now built.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think there are probably two key key sort of tenets that, that sort of started it off. One was sort of my dissatisfaction with I guess the employment or the employee experience of being in conventional consultancies. So, yeah, you know, the predication on it's a pyramid. We're going to create a load of KPIs, a load of targets around utilisation and sales um, for different grades. And hopefully when you you know, aggregate up all those people and those targets and those grades, you know someone's built a spreadsheet somewhere and that generates a nice profit number for a partner. And it's based on the possible misnomer that everyone wants to be a partner eventually and they all want to climb up the greasy ladder and, uh, and get to that point at, at, at some point. In some cases, regardless of the collateral damage that they may cause, On the way, I think if you then couple that piece of dissatisfaction, then with, I guess, the clarity of thinking I experienced when I left and became self employed as a one man band, as a one man band, you become acutely aware that you only care about two things. One is, is the client happy? i.e. will they carry on using you and find you more work or or refer you to other people? And and secondly is, are they paying their bills? Because it's always nice to keep a roof over your head and and, keep food coming in the door. So when you combine those two things, the simplicity versus the complexity, you start to think that actually how do you maintain that simplicity if you were to grow a, a consultancy and add more people into it? How do you get everyone to come on board and still just worry about the two things. You know, is the client happy? Are they paying their bills? Not, I'm three percentage points short on my utilisation target last month. I need to scrabble around and, and do something. I need to get into the main office and network with some senior partners so they know I exist. So if it comes to a, a promotion round, then you know I'm well thought of, which, by the way, I, n- I never managed to achieve uh, at my time there. So you know, I just wanted to strip all that away and actually maintain that simplicity, and and find a way to to keep it so that actually, you yeah, know, we, we, it could be a, a more, a, I guess, a, a better functioning environment.
0: So I'm going to go into that in detail shortly because I, I think there's so much in that promotions piece that we're going to spend a lot of time on. I guess to your point of kind of that simplicity, and and I love the framing. And you know, we we talked about at lunch, didn't we? The kind of if actually the goal is just is the client happy and are they paying you. Everything else should be in service of that goal. I guess what are again as much for our listeners to help them get up to speed quite quickly. Like what are the other key two, three, four principles that you set out about using and still you know exist within Hatmill today?
1: Yeah, sure. So firstly, you know, we don't have any grades. So you, if you don't have grades, you don't need promotions. You can get get rid of all that sort of baggage. And if you don't have that, then you don't need managers either. But if you haven't got managers. you you do need to acknowledge that there are activities that managers undertake that are necessary to, or that it's necessary to find a way to replace those activities. So one is, um, I guess, the allocation of work. Secondly would be sort of the pastoral care of the team. And third would be sort of doing feedback reviews, development conversations, and things like that. And it was probably when we were getting to... I don't know maybe about twelve heads that yeah I think up to about you know, sort of number twelve, you can all sort of operate you know, we're just all we're just all sort of mates getting on with the job and we know each other reasonably intimately, and there's not really much need for formality when it starts getting a bit bigger than that and you think, you know well, actually we need to do some reviews on, on performance and things like that you know i can't do I can't be comfortable that I know twelve people well enough to do a to do a, a review like a like a manager would and one thing I always detested and everywhere I've worked are those people who are better at managing upwards than they are of doing their job. Yeah. So I was always fearful that, you know, could I fall foul of something that I'd always I'd found really annoying amongst, you know, some some colleagues or, or whatever. So, yeah, I needed to avoid the, you know, creating a situation where actually someone could pull the wool over, over my eyes and be good at managing upwards with me and and actually being terrible at doing their job. So we started looking at different ways. And, and it was, it was, I had a colleague of mine, John, and I said, look, John, we can't really find a way around this. You know, I think, you know, as much as I detest it, I think we're going to have to sort of split the team. You sort of, you know, do six and I do six. And I really didn't want to do it. And uh, to John's credit, and I think it's sort of indicative of, of the culture that, that at the start that, that we've managed to maintain. John's response, well, I'm not being funny, Simon, but I hate managing people. I don't think I'm very good at it. I detest doing performance reviews and all that sort of nonsense. Um, so so no, I'd rather not. And and it sort of started, oh, right, okay, fair enough. And as we sort of reflected on it a little bit, I guess we'd raise an eyebrow when you'd, clients would try and do projects that typically you would need to go outside and get some external specialist help for. And they go, oh, I think we can have a crack at doing this. I think we can have a crack at putting a warehouse management system in or building a warehouse. None of us have ever done it before, but yeah, we think we'll be okay. And we, we know that in the main, you could be lucky, but there's probably a 99% chance you won't be. If we then sort of took a bit of our own medicine on, on that and said, well, actually... Just because someone's great at doing their job doesn't mean that they are going to be a great manager. And we see this in warehouses all the time. So, you know, you take your best picker and you make them a supervisor and you know, they'll take it because it's more money. But really, you've just damaged the productivity of the warehouse because actually leave them picking. Leave them picking and let them coach people on how to how to pick better. So really it, it, it's around, well, actually, how do we take the elements of, of that person being a manager, the, the three things are listed, and deliver that in a more professional way than typically someone who you've just promoted to be a manager because they were good at their job. So so we broke it down into into three things. So the management and allocation of tasks, but well, actually we didn't really need anyone to do that because it was a fairly it was only at 12 people, but... Effectively, it's fairly clear what needs doing most of the time in a small team and you find ways to adapt uh, adapt that and, and share information so that people have sufficient information to make good decisions about how to, how to manage tasks and, and, and allocate work and share work between each other. The feedback reviews, we decided that actually we should all just review each other because you can't pull the wool over the eyes of the people you work closely alongside all the time. So we worked on coming up with a mechanism where actually we'd all do each other's appraisals and that, that holds that sort of tension in terms of you've got to behave well and be a good, be a good citizen, if you want to use that, that sort of generally awful phrase about being part of an organization. And then in terms of the personal development and sort of the pastoral care, what we realized as we kicked that around is you can't have a good quality conversation with your line manager covering two aspects. And those two aspects that are incompatible are, one, and, and I feel I need to share my development areas with you and talk about the things that I'm a bit uncertain of, and I've you know, maybe got a bit of imposter syndrome, and I want to talk about that and get, get your advice and, and help with. And you can't do that at the same time, and generally in the same meeting as most people set it up. You can't do it in the same meeting as, oh, I'd like to tell you how fantastic I am and how deserving I am of an enormous pay rise and a promotion. Because I've just bared my soul on you know, my eighteen development areas that I think I'm crap at, and then you know, I'm going to flick the meeting around in the second half. I'm going to tell you how amazing I am. So as a result, no one does the first bit. They just sit there have a performance review and talk about, you know, quite often, you know, exaggerate how good they are at things because they'd like more money and and all that sort of stuff. And you, you know, I'm not criticising anyone. So they're right in terms of doing that because you know everyone would like more money and and, and all that sort of thing. But they're not then able to have a proper development conversation around what their their development needs are. So we thought, well, actually, we'll we'll sort of take a bit of our momentum and actually break that out and say, actually, how do we get some some professional external input into having that development conversation? So we then engaged an external, I guess, executive coach, I guess is the the term that you generally use that, that people would recognize, and gave everyone an hour session every month with an external executive coach, entirely confidential, Yeah, nothing gets shared. It's exactly like you would if you engaged a a counsellor independently. And that hour is just there for them so that they get that quality conversation. They get the input. They get the support of dealing with a problem they might be having at work. They get input in terms of maybe domestic challenges or or whatever, or, or, you know, mental health, whatever they want to talk about, they can talk about. And they get to talk to a professional rather than a line manager quietly panicking that someone's taking the conversation off piste. And quietly crapping themselves that they're going to say something that they they shouldn't, um so we you know we've've we've sort of you know put a professional in there to, to have those conversations
0: properly, I think so, and when you put it like that, it sounds very simple and makes a lot of sense, and I want to pick up on I think we've got three great areas there, and look, I know we talked about questions in advance of this, but I think we're we're going to go very all over the place so i I think before we do though because to your point, like those are three areas we can definitely dive into, I guess. Just to touch on, you know, because people might be listening to this and think that sounds amazing. They might be listening to this and think that sounds awful. I don't want to judge, and we'll talk about both sides. Of that both thing. views are fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the the last piece, and not for me to blow smoke, but just so that our listeners also, yeah, uh, you know, I want to do a little bit of qualifying in terms of actually awards you've won, and I rarely go into this, but I think it's important. Could you just explain? Because I don't think you've just like become a great place to work, but I think you've won one of the kind of most prestigious or the most prestigious versions of it. But can you explain that just so we've got that context?
1: Yeah, sure. So we entered the Great Place to Work, it's, it's complicated. It's run by Great Place to Work, which is a company name, and they run the Best Workplaces Awards. And last year we were, well, we, we, our score, so basically they send an anonymous survey to all employees in all the companies they survey, aggregate those scores and give you a, a total trust score. Um, I think ours was 98%, which means broadly everyone's very happy. And that was the highest trust score of our size of category. So last year we were in the 10 to 50 employee category, and we came first in the UK, uh, which then means in in uh, you know, we then got through to Europe and, it's kind of like Eurovision, uh, isn't it? It, it is very much, very much like Eurovision. No Graham Norton, though. Joel Domit did the UK one, actually, which is uh, interesting, if you like, behind the mask. And we got through to Europe, and we came sixth in the small business category. So this year I'm really excited because we're now in the medium category. So we've, we've sort of won the fourth division, uh, for those who are old enough to still think of it as the fourth division. And we're now going you know, to try and, try and win League Division Three.
0: So you did what Wrexham did, I believe, Wrexham, non-league was four, is that right? I'm more of a rugby uh, than football. No, non-league man, so would be five. Five, okay, year. so Wrexham are now in the four, but right. you are climbing up. And I say that, so as I said, not to blow smoke, because that's not useful for you or my listeners, but I think it, it helps us set the scene before we dive into this. Of The model you have created has built a workplace that is successful and people like to work in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it would be it would be easy to sort of think that we're all... I don't know, I don't want to offend hippies, but um hippies who sit around a campfire at night playing a guitar with our VW campers. And and we're not. We're we're a commercial organization. We are profitable. Our our you know net profit is typically a few a few percentage points higher than comparable businesses. And you know, we go out and do normal work for clients. And interestingly, we generally don't talk about this with clients in our business development process, because it's largely irrelevant. You know, still, they still, we need to focus on their problem and solving their problem. I guess it's just that if we, we know that when we work in this way, we tend to deliver great results. So it just helps us do that. So it's not a, it's not a marketing
0: angle. Probably a great place for us to jump off. And, and, Maybe we start there, because you mentioned at lunch, you know, plan survives, does never survives contact with the enemy, or is is it one of the I can't remember which boxer said, you know, everyone has a plan they get punched in the face. And I guess let's start with those three, because we're gonna go off in loads of areas. You know, to your point of all client first, client work, actually quite simply that allocation. You know, I've worked in consulting firms and everyone listening will have had this where more often than not, project comes up, you go. It's like a cab rank system. You know, we can get into the vagaries of that later. You mentioned no one needs to allocate work. So I I guess, why don't we start there? Of, well, You've got people, you've got projects. How do you allocate? And what do you do if someone says, I don't want to go and work in Scunthorpe or Southampton? Be careful. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. They're just a long, you know, as I know from uh, various pop songs, they're a long way away, but we'll talk about that later.
1: So generally, I think it boils down to consulting is a relatively simple business model, like you say. You've got some people. You've got they've got some time, and they've got some skills and expertise. And you need to match those with client needs. Generally, you know the scarcity of resource relative to the the projects come up do a lot of that decision making for you. But inevitably, quite often there are choices to be made. And in terms of the the way that we self manage, is that those people who are available, who are who are potential options for that project, generally, We'll, we'll you know more often that we'll set, we'll set up a conference call, get everyone on it. Whoever sort of you know been talking to the client and, and won the work, or is in the middle of winning the work, will share the the background and and you know they'll have a discussion and, and talk about who's got the right expertise for it. There may be someone who would really like to work on that project because they've never done that sort of work before, but therefore needs someone who's really competent in that area so they can learn from them. Um, and we just kick that sort of stuff around until that, you know that group has got a consensus of okay, looks like this is going to be the team then.
0: So there's two strands that come to me. I'm going to just hold on to your point of consensus. I suspect I know the answer to this, but where someone doesn't want to do a project, how do you tackle that? So,
1: I mean, you know, we've got to deal with the commercial reality, isn't it? And whilst, you know, I talk about sort of sitting around a campfire. We are a commercial organization. So if there's a really good reason why they can't, such as, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant. I don't really don't, you know, I can't be flying anymore or whatever. No brainer, right? Yeah, stand on one side or whatever—all those sorts of things. So, you, you know, that, I guess in sort of a, a hierarchy of needs, then we'll take take the obvious stuff into account and not force people to uh, to, to do anything that, that that they absolutely shouldn't do. Um, and then it comes down to preference and and generally. But if if you're honest about it all as a as a group, you kick it around and you'll still come to a a reasonable decision. And and, the, and part of the self management would be if that same person just keeps, well, I can't do that one, and I can't do that one, and I can't do that one. Actually, the team starts to self-manage that. And you know, that person is you know, given that appropriate feedback. And in some cases, you know, realize that Hatmill isn't right for them. And you know, they might have come in on a ticket. Oh, God, this sounds amazing. I can, you know, I can decide exactly what I want to do and when I want to do it. Well, you can't. Because if you go back to the simplicity of self-employment, if you took that approach, you wouldn't have a roof over your head and you wouldn't be feeding mouths in, in your household. So you still need to retain that, that, um, that reality of, you know, it's a commercial enterprise, and guess what? If you're not billing the client, where's the money coming from to pay your, your wage? It's not a difficult concept to get your head around, although you know, we, you know sometimes people don't. So it's, a, it's that sort of you know, level of simplicity, and you know, that can't go on forever, and it, it, and that's how it tends to self-manage and and deal with itself.
0: Oh, I, I like that, Simon. I think self-management is going to – I mean, it's a core tenant of your business and we be a theme we pull out throughout today – There's another side of this, and this is going to be really into the weeds, but it just feels like an obvious question to me. You obviously have one great consultant. And... In some ways, that makes, to your point, internally, that's easy because no one wants promotions. I don't care if you're a senior manager or I'm a manager or I can't remember if I was listening to a podcast you did before, but I think it was, where you sort of, is a director better than the senior manager? Is it? It's one of those fundamental life questions, isn't it? Who knows?
1: And an associate director or a a junior partner or a senior partner, who knows? And clients don't know. Clients have no idea. You you go and present a series of business cards
0: and ask them to put them in sequence. Which takes me to the question I was going to ask because... To your point of its client first, how do you then tackle what I would perceive an obvious challenge of, okay, well, what am I buying? So if, you know, you mentioned you worked at PwC, PwC turn up and say, right, this project's going to cost you, I don't know, a million quid. And that's made up of 10 senior managers, three directors, a junior partner, a senior partner, and whoever else. And that obviously has a commercial model behind it. How do you approach that so that commercially you do very well, but also your client knows what they're getting and that's squared in a way that everyone wins? Fine. So
1: inevitably, whilst we're all at one grade, we're not all equal and we're not pretending that we're all equal. So, you know, so we've got some people in the team with 30, 35, in some cases, 40 years experience. We've got some people in the team with two years experience. In reality, we're not going to charge the same for someone you know, because the commercial model wouldn't work because we're clearly paying someone with 35 years more salary than we're paying someone who's you know who's got three years it's logical so we do flex our our charge rates based on the individual and and and, you know their level of experience and what they're going to bring to that that project and that does have a connection with their remuneration so generally and we don't have a really tight framework and you know this is you know i guess one of the challenges sometimes when it comes to pricing jobs we do have flexibility to to move that around a, a bit to to be competitive but generally speaking yeah the more experience and expertise you've got from someone you're going to pay more for them, the less you'll pay less
0: and then to your point, is that then just done project by project? So you have a rough idea, you know we need a senior supply chain person, a mid supply chain person, a, it could be a less experienced, and then to your point, there is you know, I often say this with our business, so it's probably similar is you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Is that kind of the the approach that you use, or in terms of if you set a for your x and you know to your point, you get into that allocation meeting and actually your 25-year specialist and your 35-year specialist, you know, your 35-year is paid X more, you're going to lose on that, whereas your 25-year specialist, you might gain more. Does that make sense? Yeah, a little
1: bit. It's, It's certainly not linear in terms of the the gross profit margin as as i would imagine most consultancies are i, I think you know it's always based on you know a, a loose model we've just not defined it as a model and tried to create it as a as a as a plan that we need to stick to we're still commercially aware and know that we need to generate that profit and and that that comes into the mix as we're as we're sort of pricing it and things like that
0: i might hold here for a bit just cuz i what i want to avoid in this conversation is just firing completely random questions at you which i think we could do and i do want to come back to the pastoral care just because the way you explain it, and it makes perfect sense, we are rarely born into this world being able to deal with a lot of personal problems and work is where a lot of those intersect. I think then you know, you've touched on that kind of experience piece and let's hold there for a little bit, because in some way, everyone being a consultant makes sense. I guess to your point there, like real world, some of your team are 30 years experience, some of your team are five years experience. Is that then a case of it's who's got the most gray hair wins? If you take it to the extreme, there's two ends, isn't there? There's the kind of greyest hair in the room wins, or there is everyone, you know, complete egalitarian free-for-all. How do you balance those tensions so that you're not falling too far one side or the other?
1: When you say win, what do you mean? It's a good question.
0: Win is probably the wrong word. I would say, who decides... I used it at lunch, so I'll go with it again. If we have a T-junction, and it's a left and a right, who decides the T-junction?
1: I guess it's whoever's argument has the most merit and undoubtedly experience comes into that because, you know, if we're we're, designing a warehouse and, you know, someone who's never done it before says, oh, we should design it, we should have a cloud shape warehouse and, you know, would raise a few eyebrows amongst the more experienced People in the team, but they they probably hear it out for a good three seconds
0: before they dismissed it. What, um, what is the best shape for a warehouse? Just out of interest, um,
1: generally rectangular because okay. <laughs> most things are square that go into them. <laughs> Squares tend to tessellate better and waste least space. But that's not to say you know, actually you know, you don't want to dismiss everyone's ideas just because they've not got as many years experience. Yeah, you know, when we do our 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 training, we talk about you know divergent and convergent thinking you don't start doing convergent thinking until you've got the divergent ideas and everything's out there and then you can evaluate them rather than what we tend to do in business without having that sort of structure forced on us is dismiss anyone's idea because it's not ours as, as we go through that process. So we, we need to go through that divergent and convergent thinking. And in, in that case, you know, everyone's thoughts and suggestions have some merit, some more than others. And then you, you come to a conclusion and and you go that way. And, you know, Typically, yes, you know, those with more experience and, and have done things before will generally have the the knowledge of, of what to do more often than not, but not every time.
0: And there's an obvious extension to what you've dangled there of not every time. How do you set up the structures such that the majority of decisions don't bias the minority of decisions? So take your example, you know, if we were talking about supply chain, as I just gave away, I I, I did not know that the best warehouse was a rectangle because boxes tessellate. Makes sense. It's not my area of expertise. But we might have 20 conversations about that and therefore you have got the merit in those. But then we turn to another topic and I don't know, let's take podcasts for instance. It may be that I know more than you, I don't know, but let's say say I do. But you've won 20 of those discussions. So momentum's on your side. How do you prevent that kind of momentum biasing?
1: I think one element of it is the people we hire. So just by not having any grades, it's not a place to come if you've got an ego that needs feeding. So we tend not to have anyone with ego, generally. I can't think of anyone. And if if they do come with some, it soon gets sort of you know, knocked out of them. As a result, and I, I think if I, if I take you – know, if you, you'll allow me to make a slightly different suggestion, quite often, you know, the person with 35 years' experience on how we, you know what it should look like and, and isn't the person who – can suddenly turn to the to the data and go, well, actually, if I run this through Alteryx and Power BI or whatever, I'll be able to give you this information, this information. Generally, at that point, and the person in my team will know exactly who I'm talking about now, they'll just go, oh, okay, right, go on then, do that, and let's have a look at what the numbers say. And you know, at that point, the fog comes up, and then the fog clears, and they come out with some, some data answer. It's a good example of actually... You need to combine different pieces of experience and different, and and, and that's when it basically trades on its merits.
0: And to your point, I guess it's yeah, wrapped in some of these questions, and it's it's interesting hearing it, Simon, because to your point, without the ego, you lose a lot of that. You know, I, I shouldn't have used the word, but I used "win," implying there in a discussion there is a winner and a loser. Whereas actually, to to your point, there is a discussion with a an output which is non judgmental, which does make a lot of sense. I, I guess does that ever again back to the kind of client everything survives until contact with the client. Do you find there's ever any tensions or anything unexpected created when you bring this into a client world? Because you know, your team are non-hierarchical, suddenly you are thrust into a hierarchy. Unless you, know, you might not work. I assume you work with hierarchical organisations. Yes, so. yes.
1: There's not there's not enough <laughs> non
0: hierarchical organisations for us to, uh, to to do. We've a limited market. So, how, what if any tensions does that create? How does that square with the model? And, and yeah, what do your team have to do either differently or think about in those worlds to make that work?
1: Not a lot, really. So, as we're kicking off a project, let's say we've got a team of three or four on a project. They will get together at the start of the project, review the scope, look at what it is that we're doing in a similar way to the way we described when we were talking about assembling the team. And they'll go, right, what are we going to do? Right, who? What's, what's your specialist area? What? What do you want to have a go at? Similarly, you might have someone go, I've never had a go at that. You know, could I be the? I, I, yeah. So we will have a, a job lead because you need to have some clarity around communication with the client. So the team, but the team will decide who is the job lead, and that might not be the person with the most grey hair or or the least hair. In in more in my case. You know, it might be someone who, you know, is, is going to be job lead for the first time and someone very is sat on their shoulder to to offer advice and guidance. And because there isn't a competition for promotion and progression, everyone is generally happy to help each other improve because we all gain, you know, we get some kudos or, or we get some uh, endorphin rush from, you know, helping train someone, you know, a bit like teaching your child to ride a bike, you know, you did it, not them. And it's that sort of thing, isn't it? In terms of supporting your 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 colleagues to to do things they've not done before. And and we all we all gain from that. So we do sort of decide who's going to do what and but it's very much task and objective focused, not role or title. So you know, a classic example I often talk about is in a traditional hierarchical organization, you do an eight week piece of work. The director in the consultancy's probably done maybe three half days. In that period, you've, you've, and then two days before the presentation, the director will turn up and go, right, show me what you've done. I need to reorganize this presentation because I'm going to present it. And you sit there thinking, why the hell are you presenting this? You have no idea what it's about. You think you're going to pick it up in a day and a half when we've been immersed in it for God knows how many hours a day for the last eight weeks. And the client's going to ask you a question, and you're either going to bullshit it, or you're going to have to turn to one of us who probably should just be presenting it in the first place. And that's when hierarchy gets in the way of doing a good job for the
0: client. I like the example. And again, I, I'm asking these parts thinking I know the answer that you might give, but I like to ask them in case not, because the example you give there, and you know, I've spoken to many boutique consulting leaders on this show, and that's a reason people often leave big firms. Like you say, it's, it's el- sharp elbows, it's politics. It's like, oh, well, exactly what you described. I guess, The other end of that spectrum of why do you need a senior person to do something is because, you know, if you're going out as an experienced offering, clients expect a certain level of quality. And some of that comes with years of experience. Sometimes you need to get the gray hairs or the scars to do that. And this might be just your point of project scoping, but how do you strike that balance of making sure that you're giving someone, you know, take your child. They're getting a go at riding the bike, but they don't just ride it straight into the road.
1: So, I mean, the term you used is how does the client get the best quality? So if I come back to my example, what gives the best quality in that end of session presentation? Is it someone presenting who knows the subject inside out and has lived it, breathed it for the last eight weeks? Or is it someone who's literally swatted up at the last minute and hoping they get away with it because, you know, it's an ego play if we if we get down to it. Or if it's not an ego play, and let's be kind to the individual that we you know, the random individual that we might be referring to—I haven't got anyone in mind. If it's not an ego play, they're doing it because they think it's expected by the client. And in my experience, the client just wants to hear from the person with the with the best knowledge. They don't want to hear from the, someone with the you know the different word on the business card, whatever that word might be. You know, so if the person is best to present the, the argument and be able to respond appropriately to questions, is the person with four years' experience and not forty? put them on, you know, give them some coaching, give them some support on, on how to best present, but let them answer the questions because the client will be more impressed and go, wow, yeah, they really know that inside out. I'm really glad they got to, rather than, the, you know, in some cases they're not even allowed in the room. Well, if you've got people in your consulting team who you won't even let in the room when you're presenting, you've probably got something wrong with your recruitment. So, you know, need to, need to sort that out before any, you know, faffing around with who's going to present what.
0: This actually brings us, because I I made a note of the three things you talked about with allocating work, pastoral care and feedback, because I I think we're going to end up with those guiding our conversation. Just hearing you talk there, and it touches on some of the things you mentioned with feedback, it sounds like at its core, to your point of hippies, there is a what some might call soft side of this. But, you know, these are hippies with a kind of iron fist of, you know, if it's not working, that's going to be talked about. And it comes to what you just described there. And it doesn't have to be negative feedback. It can be positive or constructive, whatever. But I'd love to understand more about that feedback process because it sounds like it underpins a lot of the successes we've just talked about for your model.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. So I guess it's what holds the tension away from those people with no hair or grey hair riding roughshod over, over everyone else because the bit that is the meritocracy is everyone's feedback counts in equal measure. And the way the feedback process works is because we don't. No one, no one has any KPIs or any measures. So you don't have a utilization target. No one has a sales target. Yeah, you know, we don't differentiate who should be doing selling and who should be doing work. That's down to an individual to do what you do, do where you go, go where you think you can add the most value. That's, you know, that's part of the self self management thing. But in terms of the feedback, we have two things that we score each other on. One is um, our behaviour relative to our seven values. And seven values are available for anyone to look at on our website. They're also in the note. We have an insert that goes in the notebooks that we give everyone. So everyone, you know, easy to refer to. They're that important. We carry them around with us all the time. So that gives us our, probably our rule book on, you know, that's how we're meant to behave. And they're not the sort of values I see lots of other consultancies put up, which I don't really understand, if I'm honest, when they talk about connectedness and integrity it's like how do you translate you know our connectedness and integrity into our daily work life well you can't
0: it's also and i've, I've heard some of those called pay to play because things like trust trust should not be a, a value that you exhibit on a grade trust should be a binary to get you in the door yeah or a pay to play
1: and, and all that sort of stuff so it's so our value you know to classic our first value is we are one team and and that it's that's in there because yeah, we've all worked in places where there are cliques and people work against each other. Actually, we we either, we win or lose together. Yeah, we don't have that team wins and that lot. You know, they're all crap over there. Yeah, we, it's a, it's a it's a joint enterprise to use the criminal term that we go out and 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 commit to. So that's sort of you know there is one team now. That's getting more and more difficult the bigger we get because it's difficult to maintain good close connections with sixty of your closest colleagues. But yeah, we just need to work harder at it and find different ways to keep connected. And and we do some stuff on that. So yeah, we measure each other on against the values.
0: And just because you mentioned it there, I was going to ask it, but it, it feels natural now to help others place. When you say we measure each other, could you just volume and frequency? So is all sixty of you measuring each other once a quarter? How how does that work? Twice a year. And all sixty of you measure all sixty of you.
1: No, all sixty of us measure and do a feedback, a one-to-one feedback session with everyone we've worked with in that previous six months. So if you and I are part of Hatmill, I've had no contact with you whatsoever. There's not a lot of point in us sitting down and doing feedback other than, oh, I've heard this about you. It's not really valuable, is it? Whereas yeah, I've worked with you know six or seven people on a project over the last six months. I'll then book a slot, generally have half an hour We'll and we'll do feedback. And that's that's a conversation. So generally we'll you do two scores. I'll come back to the scores in a second. But then you, you sort of write, you know, a bit like a school report. You know, I think you're great at this. I've seen you do that. You know, maybe you could teach me this or whatever. I also think that actually there's a couple of things you could you could improve on. Generally, we don't, we don't do the shit sandwich. There's generally uh, some good stuff and some bad stuff. And interestingly, the way, the, the way that feedback works, and it tends to work really well, some, some improvement opportunities for us as well, but it does tend to work well. And it works well because it's done with the right motivation. It's done because we all want to help each other improve and we want to say well done to each other for doing a good job and we want to point out the stuff that we think, based on what we've observed, that actually, you know, there's a few things you could work on there and I'm happy to help you do it because if you get better, I get some benefit because, you know, you're more capable, we win more work and, you know, it becomes a, a virtuous circle. So so, so that's, that's why the, the feedback works well. The reason most of us have got a downer on feedback is because somewhere along the line in in all our employment, we've all had a crap feedback session with our manager. Largely because either the manager has no idea what they're doing or they've not had time to really think and prepare it, even though it's like once a year. It's utterly meaningless, or you've given been given some feedback because your organisation has a, a bell curve that everyone needs to be fitted against. So if someone's been given a five, someone else needs to be given a one, even if they're all in a high performing team, which is just utter bollocks. So anyone who's listening to this who's got a fixed curve, just get rid of it. It's you're just pissing people off, uh, including me in my former employment somewhere. So you, know, you 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 get into that sort of stuff. Actually, if you do it in the right way. Yeah, you know, the feedback's the only way we can improve because we're getting a view of how others see us and how we behave. And, you know, if it's good, great. If there's stuff we need to work on, right, I'll take that away and work on it.
0: And this is really rich, so I'm making que- notes to come back to questions because I knocked you off scores and I... You want uh, the other score? Well, yes. Fi- why don't we finish the scores? And then you've given me a ton to dive into, but I don't want to do what I have done on some interviews and go off on a complete different tangent and we only get scores half finished. So scores of values.
1: So scores of values and what has your performance been relative to my expectations
0: of you? That is the question.
1: That is the question. And for each of these scoring areas, we've got one to nine. I can't remember all of them, but basically seven is, you've met all my expectations. Six is you've met all my expectations except a couple. Eight is you've met all my expectations and exceeded in some areas. Nine, you've knocked it out of the park in every single thing you've ever done. I think you're amazing. Very few nines, to be fair.
0: I know we touched on this at lunch, but just because I'm sure someone listening will ask, one to nine is what was selected. There is not a particular reason for one to nine versus one to ten versus... Um, There
1: probably was, but I wasn't involved. So as with all things with self-management, a team of three or four people in the the group went, okay, this is what we're going to do. Let's come up with a methodology. They did it so long ago, I can't remember. There was a reason why it's nine and not ten or not five. Can't remember what it was, to be honest.
0: That sets quite a nice scene. One other scene setter, just because you touched on it and I didn't want to stop your train of thought, when you said works with somebody, is there a threshold of how substantial that is? A so project makes sense. You know, We worked on a 12-week project, but I don't know. If, if we recorded a podcast, does that count? Do you see what I mean?
1: It could do, It's down to the two people to figure out whether they think it did or didn't. Okay. You know, the one thing we don't do is put a load of policies in place that try to define everything within an inch of its life yeah you know, if you know, on doing this podcast we think we should sit down and do some feedback at the end of it great if we don't think it, there was much material there to work with you know don't worry about it
0: so and some of these may be obvious questions some may not be i mean it you know, the, the immediate question just cuz it was so live from what we talked about at lunch you know to your second question so the values kind of makes sense. The second question also makes sense, but becomes very subjective. And I, d- I suspect deliberately so, you know, the exact wording has escaped me, but in essence, did you live up to my expectations? Yeah, pretty much. So, you know, we talked about a lunch, didn't we? Like TripAdvisor and the vagaries of TripAdvisor. You know, if, if my expectations are McDonald's and I go to you know, a Pizza Express you have drastically exceeded my expectations. If my expectations are Michelin star and you take me to McDonald's, you're drastically below my expectations. How do you create a world which produces fairness where you could, you know, I could be on a project with someone whose expectations are just ludicrously high, or I could be on a project with someone who doesn't give a fuck, within reason. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that?
1: Okay, so there's a couple of ways that we can look at this. The reason we've done the phrasing as it is is because what we wanted to do was replicate what a client thinks. So a client doesn't sit there and say, Oh, your business card says you're a director. Oh, I'm expecting big things from you.
0: I'm saddened. I thought that's what clients did. Uh,
1: and all that's, yeah, that. Because, as we've talked about, they've no idea what a director should do. What they will do is they'll make some prima facie judgments based on the experience of someone, or sorry, the appearance of someone, then their experience of where, how they've introduced themselves and go, okay, right, you've been there, done it, I'm expecting loads from you, you're the novice, you, you know, you're the bag carrier, whatever, all that sort of stuff. As colleagues, you've got a deeper understanding of what people's backgrounds are and things like that. So, so you know, it's still absolutely subjective. And yeah, but but therefore, it still has some merit in terms of you've know, got some expectations. And what you generally find is over a period of time. Let's say you and I worked together for two or three years, So we've gone through six feedback cycles. You know, God forbid, from your point of view,
0: I'd be a much better person after it. So that's what I'm hearing. <laughs>
1: Possibly, and um, you you generally get a bit of a sine wave in terms of the scoring because you might work together initially and go, Wow, we had yeah, you know, we've only just met. I know you've done a bit of stuff, but wow, you, you you're, you're amazing. But that then sets an expectation for the next feedback round, and you go. Actually, you're just doing the same stuff you did last time, so I'm going to score you a little bit lower because you've not really moved on from from where you were. And then you sort of get that kick up the backside, and the next one you've you know, you've stretched yourself, you've done a bit more. So you, you can see how that sort of sine wave can can often sort of appear in 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 ex, not extreme cases, but you know, rather than just sort of middle of the road all all the way along. So you see that sort of pattern. The other thing I I'd like to come back to is, is based on the question. Because the, the the premise of the question, I suspect, is based on conventional appraisal processes are absolutely fair and you get a really good sense of someone through, an, through a normal appraisal process, which I'd like to suggest we could challenge.
0: That was not the uh, premise at all. It was very much that humans have different perspectives on today you are wearing a shirt, today I'm wearing a polo shirt. We both may consider this smart casual. But you might be looking at me and thinking, what a mess, why has he not got a shirt on? And I might look at you and think, well, he's very smart for today. There's probably too many different things that have gone through life to lead to that point. And I guess it comes back to, you know, the, the, whether TripAdvisor is the right example or not. Like We have all worked with people who hold things to a higher standard without opening a debate of what is right or wrong in that. I guess it's that how do you standardize or to your sine wave example, you know, identify where... Bill always bloody gives people a six. I don't know. John always gives people an eight. Do you see what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the conversation, they need to justify why you're giving a six and why you're giving an eight. So you don't just sit there and go right and shout, blurt two numbers out at each other. You sit there and you talk about the evidence and, and, and why, you've, why you've done that. So yes, you know, so, so it is substantiated in in that way. But it, it's sort of it's interesting to come back to the TripAdvisor thing. So yeah, you know, we were joking about you know, you're going to, you know there's there's a certain sort of person who does a TripAdvisor review, and they tend to be quite extremes. However, yeah, you know, so we we would say okay, TripAdvisor is is imperfect, but you know, probably 90% of people on this call will look at TripAdvisor if they go to a... Your consultants are classics, aren't they? Because you end up in a new town. How do you work out where to go and eat that night? You get on TripAdvisor and find somewhere that, you know, doesn't look like it's going to give you food poisoning. So whilst we might acknowledge it's imperfect, broadly speaking, we know the places with five dots are better than the places with one. And it, whilst it might be imperfect, it still gives us a good guide on how those places are doing. And this is similar. So you know, what, what I'm not sat here saying on any aspect of what we're talking about now is we've got it right and everyone else has got it wrong and we've you know it's perfect here and, and it's imperfect anywhere else i would say it's imperfect what we've got what i would also say is i think and i think most of our, most of our, if not all our team think it's better than the alternative convention way of conventional way of of, of operating and managing a team
0: there's two questions within that to your point you know the the world is nowhere near perfect and if we're making it a little bit more perfect it's probably better than not i think specific to your model there are two things that jump out well there's a few things but two immediate to your point of the feedback approach so you know we we touched on at lunch uh, i mentioned principles by ray dalio and netflix have got a very famed sort of feedback culture as well and in all examples where people are put into a world of honest open transparent feedback to your point of better usually it has better outcomes but also and particularly for certain cultures it is much harder to do so you mentioned you've opened an office in the netherlands
1: uh, we we we've, we've we've incorporated we don't have offices but yeah
0: okay so we, we have dave over in in the netherlands we now, have yeah. dave in, in the netherlands and and i'm you know these are gross over simplifications but dutch people are known to be straighter talking than brits you know us brits will be very polite and even within England, us Southerners will be much much less straight-talking than us Northerners. And how do you, I guess, support your team, coach them, guide them to get comfortable giving, to your point, regardless of scoring and flexing within that, giving honest feedback? Because if it's one thing, to your point, you're used to writing a performance review and putting some buzzwords in, it's quite another sitting in front of someone and going, Simon, you were good at that, but you were crap at that.
1: It's a skill. Yeah, and like all skills, it needs to be learnt and refined over time. We, we talked about we've got exec coaches, so we, we've actually got two because of the, the size of the team in terms of covering it all. In the lead up to feedback sessions twice a year, they will generally focus those coaching sessions on okay, so you know what feedback are you giving? You who are you giving feedback to? What are you going to say? Do we need to cover that and and practice going through that so you can land? The message in the right way, in the right tone, that the person feels it will be helpful. You know, inevitably, yeah, you know, we don't all get on with each other as, as much as I would love us all to. But you know, you've got a big, a, a big range of personalities, and you know sometimes people need a, a bit of help and guidance in terms of how to have a how to make sure the conversation is constructive, not destructive. So, so that's sort of how we we help people along with that. Do they always get it right? Impossible to say because I'm not in all the sessions. Uh, I suspect, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd guess not, but is it more right than, than it is wrong? Yeah, I, I think it is. I I always, you know, and I've pushed the team on this. I was saying, you know, be braver with your formative feedback. You're not helping. And, you know, whilst it might feel uncomfortable to sit there and, and say, well, Nick, you know, come on. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't great what you did the other day. Actually, it still needs saying, because if you don't say it, you're not helping them. So you've got to be coming from a place of wanting to help people. And if you do that, you'll do it in the right way and and do it rather than just avoiding the, oh, I really don't want to have that conversation. None of us like saying someone didn't do something well. I don't like saying, I know people will be surprised by hearing that because I I do seem to say these things rather a lot, but none of us like having those conversations. And yes, we'll all sort of have a bit of a sleepless night thinking about, I hope it goes well. They're not crying or or whatever at, (laughs) at the end of it. But it's the it's the only way we improve by giving high quality focused feedback. The other thing that sort of I guess a, an unplanned consequence of doing it in this way is we do it every we do it twice a year. What we learned sort of probably in the first year of implementing this, I think we've I think we're into about sixth year of of having this process. It became very obvious very quickly to people that if you're sat down in June and say, oh yeah, I'd like to take you back to that meeting in February where you did this and you've not mentioned this since February, that's then an awkward situation. So what, what we've realized as a team is it started to push a feedback culture into day-to-day life because if they did something in February and you've not said anything, you're going to look like an arse if you bring it up in June. So, so mention it in February, deal with it then, and then we're into that world where, that none of us have ever experienced where there's no surprises coming out of a, out of a, a performance or a feedback review.
0: I can just imagine you giving that feedback to someone as well in their six months. It's uh, don't be an ass next time. I like that. And there's an interesting and, and you will have lived this. so I ask this as much because you 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 just touched on there. Like the, the outcome has been regular feedback delivered. Okay, so i mean, actually that meeting. You could have done this better. And now, not all feedback is negative. So it might mean something that was an amazing meeting. As humans, to your point, you know, why does the method the shit sandwich exist? Because, and this might be orthodoxy that's not true, it's a good challenge I suspect might come my way, is we focus on the negative. So if I tell you something, you were great in that meeting, but actually the way you answered that question wasn't very good, your brain immediately goes, you know, bin the positive, go straight to the negative. And has that created any issues? You know, if people feel they're just getting negative feedback all the time, has that created any issues? How have you dealt with them? If not, I'm, I'm fascinated because, again, if I was listening to this, that would be my immediate thought and question.
1: So in, in I guess, six years of doing this, I'm trying to think average number of reviews, I mean, yeah, it's a hell of a lot, isn't there? If you've got 40 people reviewing several pieces, so I guess, God knows, we're into thousands of reviews. I can think of three occasions where... It's not gone well and that's escalated to the point where someone's rung me and said, This has happened. I'm not very happy about it. What shall I do? And I'll go, have you spoken to your coach about it? And
0: you know. And the coach is the executive coach. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: And, and and suddenly it'll become clear why we've got coaches is so that I don't have to deal with shit.
0: <laughs> 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 Sounds like you've got a great job, sir. It's, uh...
1: <laughs> it would be a cynical way to look at this. And then actually start to, you know, find a way to, to media. And occasionally someone might say, Okay you need to get together again. And actually, why don't you invite someone who's, you know, arm's length away from it, knows you both, but actually can help mediate it through. And and generally that sort of resolves it.
0: I think though you touched on, and I I had it as a note, and I'm glad you brought it up because I wanted to come back to it. There's another question that that creates and not the disagreement, but you mentioned around the number of reviews, et cetera. Today's world, you know, this is a consulting podcast, but this could be extrapolated to anything. We're all too busy. We've all got too many demands on our time. And so if I'm, as consultants typically do, work hard, demanding projects. You know, I'm doing a long project. Suddenly I've interacted with 20 people and I've got to give them feedback. How have you made it work just from a sheer capacity perspective? How does that work?
1: No one's ever made me aware that that's a problem. So if I think, I, probably, I think this feedback round is we're coming into the end of the year when we're recording this, I think I'm doing feedback for 15. So that will be seven and a half hours, generally about half an hour chat. Over teams, you can fit it in, and if you're if you're on a project together, obviously you, know, you do it. But quite often, it'll be you know, you know, let's go and grab half an hour before we go out for dinner, or let's go. You know, you, you just fit fit these things in because they are important. It's probably the most important half an hour. You know, we spend you know, in in those periods just have those those conversations. I, I you know generally you know, enjoy having them.
0: And because I'm sure it'll be useful for others, you, know, you mentioned that generally half an hour. Half an hour of feedback requires structure and you've you've alluded to it throughout this but is there an agenda that you recommend for that
1: um so we have a a structure that we recommend people use for feedback and that people are trained in that on their initial consulting skills as they join hatmill generally sometime in the first 2 or 3 months of joining and it's it's the eec model which is um example so you did this effect you know it did this i, mean, I it made me feel i saw the you know whatever it, it did and then C is either, because con- you know, it was good, continue. If it was bad, change. And and if you do it in that way, and then there's, there's only two ways to accept that feedback or receive it. One is thank you, because you're showing your appreciation for someone putting themselves out there and either complimenting you or having a difficult conversation to uh, to, to put that point across, or I don't understand. Which means, I'm not really sure where you're coming from. Could you explain a bit more so I can understand? Um, Because the temptation is when we get, particularly when we get formative feedback, is ah well the reason I did this is because and and it just degenerates into an awful conversation because and someone's just out there trying to help you and they're going yeah okay fine whatever you know if, if you need to do that so we don't do that there are some people who like to use a third version which is generally two words and the second one's off but we try and we try and avoid that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, we won't have to do too much guessing for the first word and I, I guess this brings to life you know we touched on it earlier but i'm I'm gonna clarify to ensure i understand you know to the point of don't understand to we mentioned earlier around the kind of senior you know person junior person they might have a discussion and actually the feedback is there to your point it's the kind of equalizing force so if if i am junior and i say to you well actually i felt you railroaded me that time or whatever the word you want to use. So I'm giving you, you know, you're not, it's not working for me. So that's why you have a lower score for me. Presumably that's where the feedback becomes to your point. It, it can encapsulate everything from skills. So Simon, actually to deliver that presentation better would be this, as well as interpersonal. If you want to work well with me, this is what I think we need to change. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's, it's an opportunity to have that that, that conversation. Just one, one thing I'd like to correct your language slightly you've used junior and senior. Um, Sorry. So I'd say less experience. Less experience, and more, more, and more, more you experienced. Are, Yes, less experience, But it's more important experience. because it's it's very easy for us to drift into it's that that type of language and all of a sudden there isn't a formal hi- hierarchy, but everyone's like, oh, but there is a hierarchy, isn't there? Yeah, you're just pretending there isn't, and you've got to be really careful in your language and and live in, you know, I, I certainly have as the sort of the, I guess the the custodian of of that way of working.
0: Yeah, we we will be coming back to you as the custodian, but not not at the moment. And no, you're you're right. And I, I mean, it's it's fascinating as well, Simon, because. As I am realising talking to you, I need to go on a bit of a hierarchy detox because, you know, as you are, you're quite rightly highlighting a lot of these words and phrases just slip into a, you know, into a lexicon, but lexicons have power, lexicons have meaning. And actually, like you say, as soon as you say junior, senior, you, you've enforced... A hierarchy even if actually you don't want one and i think it's a really powerful point these may be obvious but i do want to ask them because back to our scoring example so the feedback everything sounds brilliant obviously this then has a direct impact on what you take home as pay and as soon as you introduce pay into anything it just brings a whole new dimension like you can say what the fuck you want to me if it doesn't affect my pay simon but as soon as you're going to affect my pay i've got an issue And I guess, are there any guardrails or do you need any guardrails? You know, I think about, I get an Uber and most people listening to this will have got an Uber. And the amount of time you get an Uber and the guy or woman goes, I give you five star, you give me five star. You know, they're not always that overt, but I have had people who will kind of hold their phone up at you and go five stars. And the inference is you must give them five stars. And now, obviously, to your point of not everyone in HatMill measures everyone. So I'm on a project with five people, six months, What stops us going, you know what guys, if we all give each other eights, we get a X percent pay rise. Well, you've been an eight. Yeah, you've been an eight. How do you, it might just be that doesn't happen, but that would be an immediate fear for me.
1: Right. So number one, an eight doesn't equal X percent. So what happens is the way that the pay review works is stage one, we look at the gross profitability of the team. The gross profit in the team over a given year. Whole team. Whole team. One team, including US. And because it's important, you know, back to value number one, we are one team. If you want people to behave as one team, measure it as one team. Don't go, oh, yeah, we did the, you know, the US guys, because people start hanging on to work and doing all sorts of daft stuff. We've all seen it. You'll have seen it in, in your previous play. Yeah, so it is genuinely one team in every single aspect. So the whole team, what's the gross profit? That dictates how much the overall salary pot increases by. So let's say, I don't know, gross profit is you know, 40%, then it goes up by 3%. If it gross profit's 50%, it might go up by 9%. I don't know, make some numbers up. But effectively, that's what increases the pot. It's then the scoring that determines the allocation of that pot increase. So it isn't, oh, you get an 8 you get a 9% pay increase you get an eight, you're at the top end of the, the spectrum for the, for the allocation of the pot. And then that's also split by a Pareto analysis of everyone's pay going into the pay review. So if you're the top septile, we have septiles because there's so many of us now. So if you pro let's assume there's 49 of us to keep the numbers simple from, from my simple brain. Um, if you're in the top seven pay people, you will, your pay, uh, an eight might be 3% a one would be zero because if you're below five, you're not getting a pay rise because someone's really worried about you. Versus if you're the lowest sector, if you're the lowest paid seven people, an eight might be 12% on that, assuming it all flows through. Then you multiply those percentages by the overall pot increased percentage and that then does the allocation. So if we were all to go and try and game the system by giving each other an eight, one is if I'm giving you an eight, but I genuinely don't think you were an eight, I'm giving you some of my money because I think I am an eight, and if I give you, and you should be a six, then actually that pot allocation, more of that pot allocation is coming to you than coming to me. In, in terms of, So it holds that tension in there. It's
0: not a... So you don't have a forced distribution, but the allocation is through distribution. Yeah. Got you. So to your point, the, the self-serving incentive is, there is not an incentive to score people you don't believe are eight at that eight. I guess is there still a bit of, you know, it's the old kind of, prisoner's dilemma, isn't it? If I don't score you an eight, might you score me a six? So am I going to score you an eight?
1: So I would like to think that doesn't happen. I would like to think that, you know, because someone's got to go first in those conversations.
0: Well, that's an interesting point. When are scores locked in?
1: When they're, the feedback form submitted at the end of it. Now, I think there's a real variety, actually, I'm trying to think of, because I, I, I participate in this as well, you? and have, have feedback from people. Sometimes we talk about the scores and sometimes we don't. Actually, it's amazing how often we just talk about stuff and, you know, this is great, this is great, this is great, and... Yeah. You know, what about focusing on this? Sometimes we don't talk about scores. Other feedback sessions I've had where people do talk about. You know, where they go. I've given you a, a seven and an eight. Yeah, you know, they don't all give me nine. Sadly, so there's, there is something that you know, the the importance doesn't necessarily carry through and do all that sort of stuff. But in terms of in, in terms of how how it works, you know, so sometimes I share. So they are locked in when everyone's done the feedback. They then send all the forms in, and, and that's when it it goes into the mix. Um, I'd be horrified if anyone's changing scores for someone, given that you know someone else had scored them down might happen maybe not
0: who knows it's interesting to us because to your point earlier around like the model where you know if you get a four someone else has to get a two like that that's obviously a terrible model there is a question of do you need to know but there there is obviously a question of how would you know to your point actually if everyone gets an eight that could just be because you've got an awesome team and then i guess to your point the percentage becomes a flat percentage
1: yeah it flat for each septile. yeah
0: Do you know, like, roughly how does it tend to break out? Like, do you find that over the six years you've been doing it, like, there is a norm that is created? Yeah,
1: typically the average is 7.4. Well, sometimes it's 7.6. So, seven being you're doing everything. So, I think there is a tendency because I think it does relate to pay that people may have quite formative conversations, but then will still score quite leniently because they don't want to negatively affect someone's pay. I think that so does you, so happen. So you get
0: you you avoid sharp negatives rather than to your point kind I think of so. artificial positives. Yeah. I,
1: I think the, I think generally people still having the conversation go, no, I think there's a load of stuff you can work on, but I've still given you a seven and, and that sort of thing. And I also think there's um I think there's a bit of suspended sentencing as well. And and I've been guilty of this in in the past You've being entirely open. So I've said, Look, based on you know who you're talking to, you you know you if you if you've got a confidence player or or something, yeah, I'll I'll sit down with someone and go, look. I think there's a load of things you need to focus on, and I'm a bit concerned you're doing these things, you know, which is about as hard as I ever have to get on it. Now, I've given you a seven, but if you've not fixed this by Christmas, you're getting a five to to, to counteract it. Yeah, and, and therefore, okay, you know, sort it. Yeah, and give and you know, you've got to, you've got one chance. It's a bit like you know, it's the equivalent of going on a speed awareness course.
0: I can admit I've done a couple of those as well, <laughs> and that I guess makes sense. So to your point, sorry, I guess this is where, and you you know, you mentioned it earlier. This is the kind of perfection versus improvement, isn't it? And what I'm hearing from you is that is a, I guess, a tolerable risk.
1: Mm, yeah. And it means that actually no one's dreading feedback. I don't think they are anyway. It's, it's become a, you know, it's a process where we learn and we we get some scores and, and it works. It's not as emotive as I would suggest to other places I've been involved with, pay reviews, performance reviews, promotion reviews or whatever, and all that sort of stuff. It, it doesn't generate a a load of noise and distraction. We just, you know, we do it, we get on with it and, and it plays through.
0: Well, and and your point there, and it, back to our jokes about different grades, isn't lost of grade is also a very simplistic proxy for income, isn't it? You know, if you're, a, again, I, I don't want to use grades because they all might mean different things, but if you're a grade that implies you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you are likely to earn less than the person at the top. And now I wouldn't be naive enough to think, back to your point, if someone is younger, less experienced, let's use less experience because age doesn't denote experience, they are less experienced. They are likely to have less market value and therefore less income than a someone with more experience. It's hard. I'm practicing it. As a result of this model, then does the salary conversation, tension questions just disappear? Are you actually the other way? You know, are you super transparent and you're like, well, Bill earns this much, Jane earns this much? Because I've seen people cut it both ways. And you know, I've seen consultancies where they are grade led, but they're very transparent on grades. I've seen firms where you can't find anything on it. How do you square that kind of circle?
1: Yeah, it, it's a tricky one. So like we did when we came up with the, the feedback model, I said, what do you want to do as a team? You know, do, you want to, do you want to share salaries? Do you want to have it all transparent or not? Makes no difference to me, what I own or whatever. And they decided, no, we'd like to keep them private. Was that the best thing to do? Was it not? Who knows?
0: And is that when you say salaries, as in the bands, as in the individual, no, as in individuals? Fine. Uh, and then, do you, what do you, a band?
1: So there isn't a band. You know, the the septiles are driven by whatever the inbound salaries are. That doesn't mean it's a banding. It's just we're applying percentage increases based on the um, stratification of of people's salaries on on the way into that into that process. So there isn't a band. And I think the best way to describe how this works in the long term is. If you were to do a chart, and this is difficult on a podcast. So
0: you've already had me at Septiles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Don't do this if you're driving. If you were to have a chart with time across the bottom and salary up the, the y axis, and you were to plot your, you know, a typical salary profile over, over a career, it would generally go up in steps. You, know, you get a promotion, it goes up in a step, it then has a slight gradient with inflation, then goes up in a step, and you've got that sort of you know, stepped process from bottom left to top right if you were to do your entire career at hat mill basically we've thrown a curve through those steps so if you're getting good scores
0: linear curve or an exponential curve?
1: um it's an exponential curve flattening at the top got you because generally as you get to the top end of your earnings in a particular career you generally just you know you're going up by inflation and maybe a little bit more or, or whatever so it's, it's, it's that sort of curve and if you're getting great scores you're going up that curve faster than those people getting less great scores so there is a way to accelerate up to those those salaries without it being a be all and end all of whether you got a promotion in one year or not which you know for for people like you and I who've been in larger consultancies you know the announcements of who got promoted and who didn't literally can can lift or destroy the motivation of an uh, of an individual and a team for probably two or three months and probably results in people choosing to leave or choosing to stay it's such a binary thing and no one really performs to such a binary level each year yet you're forcing a typically a partner and director group it probably makes some really difficult decisions and they're probably just sitting there wringing their hands about certain individuals. I don't think they ever wrung their hands about me, by the way, but they're wringing their hands about, Oh yeah, what did you yeah, they're, they're going to be a flight risk if we don't give them promotion. Yeah, but they're not really, it's all the things. Yeah. Actually get rid of it. It doesn't need to be
0: there. I'm going to hold on this salary. pitch Just, because I think what you describe that it opens a lot of questions that I suspect you've got ways to answer with your model, but the, the, the symptom is a salary question. so, Taking your graph there, this is probably a smaller one to start with, but for people's career progression, some people it's learning, some people it's other things. And all of us, there is a financial component. You know, why do you work 10 hour days as a consultant to earn an income greater than what you could earn doing something else? How do you tackle where one of, you mentioned, you know, you've got people who come in at 21, so they're new to the career and they go oh, I'd I'd love to know how much I could earn when I'm in 10 years experience 20 years is is that just a one-on-one conversation where you say look people in this industry at this salary roughly earn that sort of thing how do you
1: Yeah we we've, we've talked about sort of what the the top earning you know and generally a bit like any other consultant we still operate in the in the marketplace so you know if you're a a good consultant doing some sales and you know a good background of experience yeah you're probably in the you know over 100 150 you know 130 somewhere around that mark just like it would be anywhere else it's no different it's just a curve to that point
0: as you say though you you create the curve Based on those factors, you don't create the steps or the the gates. You've led into one of my other questions, which is in a world where every consultant purely does consulting, as in I am delivering work for a client, one curve makes sense. How do you then factor in? You touched on sales. And actually, sales might be the easiest example because it's the starkest. Is like if you're doing an internal issue, like you might do a little HR on the side, you could say HR is comparable with marketing, or you could say it's comparable with accounting, whatever. But if I'm there bringing in X million quids worth of business to Hat Mill, how does that get, I guess, accounted for?
1: It doesn't. It's, it's part of being here, just the same as being a good colleague and, and, and delivering some work. And it will change over time. You know? So you know, let's not pretend that you know, if you're X grade in, a, in an organization, every year is going to be uniform. And you're going to go and do a million pounds of sales and you're going to do 65% utilization year in, year out. Doesn't happen like that, you know you'll have one year where you're on your backside and you you're struggling to sell a quid and but you've got yourself on a project and you you're running at ninety percent utilization and other years where actually you've put a load of effort in it's been a nine month sales effort and you've just sold four million quid, but your utilization's bad well, either's fine, isn't it based on the performance of the organization if there's other people doing other stuff around you, it's the aggregate of the team performance that really matters not it's not necessary to break it down and pigeonhole each individual based on some sort of accountant spreadsheet that everyone at this grade needs to be hitting this because actually it all then generates one point two million pounds of partner profit share or, or whatever the spreadsheet might indicate again it's It's back to group enterprise or joint enterprise sorry that actually you know there's always time so, you know, Covid was an interesting time for us, so like most consultancies. Second, third week of March 2020, the phone keeps ringing, not in a good way, where people are just canceling and stopping projects. Totally understandable. But you're watching the business that you've spent at that time, what, 11 years disappearing down the toilet pan very quickly. And you sat there being rather upset about it. We got everyone together on a call and went, right, you know, this is the situation. Everyone in the team on a team's call, right, you know, these are the projects down. This is, you know, being really transparent about it because we're treating everyone like adults, not the parents go away into a room and have a chat and then come out and decide what they're going to tell the children. You know, we, we only employ adults, as you should, and we treat them as adults. So we got everyone on the call and said, right, these are our cash reserves. This is how much wages are per month. This is you know current projects that we've still retained. Yeah, there's the gap. Do whatever you can. Yeah. You know, so what, what is it that you can do? So if you're on a project, great. Keep looking for other opportunities to, for us to do more work for them. If you're not and your project's been cancelled, basically pick up the phone to anyone in your network who, and, and ask them how they're doing. you know, what, what, what's, what's going on? Because everyone, you know, everyone wanted to know what everyone was going on at that point. And lo and behold, out of that, we get five, six projects emerge in that month. Now, you can't do that if you've determined that the bottom two grades of your organization has no sales responsibility because if you expect it in that way and you then turn around and go, right, you know, go and do your network and see what we can sell. They'll go, not my job. I don't get the big, but you know, the big books are for the partners and directors because they've got the sales target and they get big money. So therefore selling must be worth more than delivering is the implication of doing that. I think it's up for debate whether selling is worth more than delivering yeah you know, as a, as a concept, but we probably haven't got time for that today. So, if you've got that joint enterprise of this month, we shall mostly be selling in in terms of that as an approach, then you know, great. that's what we all need to turn our hand to because we're in the shit. When things are going well, about right, this month, we shall mostly be delivering and get into that. And because you've not specified how much of your time you should be spending doing whatever, you've got this fantastic flexibility and adaptability that means the team, can move a bit like the blob, if you want a visual representation, but it can move into the spaces it needs to move into to do well. And it doesn't need to conform to the rules of the spreadsheet.
0: There are a few pieces in that that talk to some sharp, pointy things in consulting generally. And and to your point, I I will not open the debate of delivery versus sales because we don't have enough time. But I... I ask these as much because of conversations I've had recently, both for the podcast and outside. And weirdly, I've had a run of guests who are big into transparency. So I've been thinking about transparency a lot. And just to your example there, if you've got your one to nine continue, you've gone full nine on transparency. Salaries are greater than income. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out, well, at the end of that, someone might have to leave if we don't improve that. I guess there's two questions... I might start with... Oh, sorry,
1: let me just come back to Go that on. point then. So the implication wasn't that someone might have to leave if we sort that out. What I talked about in terms of that situation is we know that there are economic cycles. The people who do well are those people who maintain their capability during down cycles because they could be like a be like motor racing. You come out of the curve faster because you've still got your capability. So we talked about our number one objective is to make sure that we've got ex- you know, at least the same capability capacity at the end of Covid. And I did some forecasting, and I thought it was going to last about twelve to fourteen weeks. So don't get me doing your forecasting. But then again, I'm not sure anyone else. I, I,
0: well, I was similar. So I thought it would give up after school holidays, September. We'd all be back to normal. <laughs> but Yeah, shows what I know as well.
1: And but you know, we needed to retain that. So actually, and, and I talked, you know, we talked in there. So look, so we might have to. You know, I'm suggesting we suspend the bonus scheme now, so we have a bit of a bonus scheme that rewards profitability by person. And yeah, you know, I'm taking I'll, I'm taking a twenty percent pay cut. You know, to make sure we keep more cash in. And, you will know, we'll, we'll keep focused on it. And, you know, at some point we may all need to take a pay reduction, but that will be so that we don't need to lose anyone. But, you know, basically if, if none of us are leaving the house, we're probably not going to be spending that much either. And, you know, we, it's about survival as a group, not actually we're going to, you know, cut some ballast off the hot air balloon and, and let people drop. Absolutely not. This is a, this is a single team endeavour.
0: So that is really useful because it, paints the picture of how you framed it and clearly it makes perfect sense to your point the vision is we're all going together we're one team i guess the interesting question and and this might just be it never crossed your mind but if again for me or if i was a listener if i've said that to a team to my team there is an immediate fear well if people are hearing that you might like i could say that till i'm blue in the face someone like oh we're, we're at risk here and you know i'm a to your point of the market i am a covid obviously is a unique time but I'm an in-demand supply chain expert. Simon said, I might have to take a pay cut. You know, that 20% might not matter to the CEO, but I've I've got bills to pay. Was there any fear or concern around, yeah, just people would make those assumptions? You know, they they may be, to your point of treating people like adults, not all adults have been through a recession, not all adults understand the cash flow. That doesn't make them less adult. It just makes them less adept at that.
1: Yeah, so let's look at the two alternatives. Because I did have a debate with someone in our team who said, I don't think you should be this transparent with everyone. You know, a lot of people are inexperienced in the world of work. And yeah, I think the more experienced of us, uh, he meant senior, um, <laughs> the, more <experienced, laughs> the more experienced of us should get together and have a think about what we could do. And, and that went against my, my gut instinct. We've not mentioned Frederick Lelou's book, Reinventing Organisations. We so, have not,
0: please do. So
1: a lot of what I've talked about, is based on a concept that Frederick Lelou in his book, Reinventing Organizations, calls TEAL we discovered this book about three or four years into our journey of working in this way. And someone went, I was interviewing someone who's in our current team at the moment, and went, oh, you've based it on Frederick Leloux's book. And I like, I've never heard of Frederick Leloux or his book. So we then got a copy, and it was a bit like the end of the usual Suspects film, where you start having flashbacks, you're reading something, and go, yeah, we did that, and we did that, and oh, you know, and all, all that sort of stuff. So that's become our guidebook. It's, not a, it's, you know, it's, it's a reference text that when you've got a bit of a problem what are the businesses that are self-managing out there and, and work under this teal way that he, he calls it? What, how, how have they reacted? So I turned to at this stage around COVID and how open should we be and, and turned to the index of Frederick Lewis' book and you know, crisis management. And there's a page and a half on crisis management. And it talked about the recession of 2008 and a, a business called Favi in France, which probably pronounced differently to, I've just done it in Lancastrian. And their chief exec, uh, Jean-Francois Zobrist. Great name. Um, and when 2008, Peugeot were turning down their volume of, of orders, he went down onto the shop floor, stood on a pile of pallets, got everyone to turn the machines off and said, we've got about 60% of our capacity in orders. What do you want to do? And you know, rather than sort of sitting with the management team, and because you know, that would have taken three days of kicking it around and all that, so went down to the shop floor and said that. They had a load of agency workers there. And very quickly, the, even the employed team said, "Well, you know, the agency there might be agency workers, but they're still part of our team. So, rather than getting rid of agency, why don't we all take a forty percent pay cut? We just work three days a week, and and we'll do that way. And then when, you know, when we're back, we've, we've got the capacity. Which is—you know, you might have seen the parallel of what I said
0: on our COVID hey, call. I'm a big believer of take what works and use it yourself. Plagiarism. Why do you think on- I run a podcast? I I mean? saying, well,
1: plagiarism is only a problem at universities, I, I've found. <laughs> and literally within ten minutes." The workforce have agreed to do that. The machine startup, up, and it's taken ten minutes to solve the problem and get everyone buying into it. And you, I read this, and then took a picture of it and sent it to the, my colleague who was going. To do, I think it's, you know, we just need the adults. He didn't use that term, but it, it sort of you know, the, the, the the parallels there. And it's oh, right, okay. Well, I sure, don't necessarily agree, but okay. You yeah. know, your company Simon, you, know, you know, let's uh, you know, go for it then. And and my the, the reason I do all this explaining relative to your point is. Whether you tell people they're at risk or they aren't doesn't really make any difference. People, If you leave a vacuum of information or you polish the information and you you can't polish your turd, but you can roll it in glitter, it doesn't change the situation. So if you leave a vacuum, people will fill it with other information that probably isn't right. And the information they fill it with is probably worse than the reality. So by having that clarity and going, look, you're all adults. You all manage to get up in the morning. You always manage to you know, wash yourselves, dress yourselves, pay your bills and all that sort of thing. Therefore, you can deal with reality. And here is the reality that we've got, we're faced with at work. And you know, we've got four months worth of, uh, of you know, let's, say we do, let's say we do not another pounds worth of work from today, we've got cash for four months. Every time we break even, that four months rolls, and then yeah, we'll see where we get to. In reality, we grew 130% that year because largely i think because well, there was there was opportunity in supply chain but the team pulled together amazingly well and and started you know, having that clarity of what our purpose was and and as a blob filling the space that needed to be filled to get the best outcome a lot of other consultancies went into right we need to go into you know war planning and right let's get the senior team in and you know start recutting budgets we didn't do, you know we don't have we don't have a budget we never have a budget we don't have a we don't have a forecast all that time you know we could have you know, if we'd followed that route We'd have wiped a load of people out. Instead, what we needed to be doing was going out and talking to clients and going, what are you up to? Can, you know, anything we can help with? And you know, we got a load of yeses. You know, that's far more effective than writing you know, budgets and having a you know, senior team away days, doing your budgeting and things like that. Don't do that. Go and talk to your clients. Go and win some work.
0: Uh, I'm smiling because I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I am with you. I mean, particularly when it comes to winning work, I think complexity is the killer of all things. And I, I love what you said as the vacuum point is is really key, isn't it? Is you know, actually, if you tell people everything, you know, if you shine a light, even if it's ugly, at least they've seen it. Whereas if you keep the corner dark, the corner is scary and, and full of monsters. Just because sales is such a live in our industry. I mean, you've, you know, you've worked in it a long time. The example you gave sounds like the team rallied around a real challenge, and you know, m- amazingly so, you know, to your point, 130% growth. How do you, in, let's call it normal times, how have you created a structure in which some people like to win business? And the only reason I ask that is there is an archetype of, People who leave a big consultancy or, you know, join somewhere where you can work as a consultant, they want to be the doers. You mentioned earlier around, you know, in the factory, the person who does the kind of packing might not want to be a manager or shouldn't be a manager. And in our language, there's a lot of people who like packing. They don't want to be the hitting the phone, selling packing. How have you created the means that somebody wins business?
1: Consulting is a very simple business model. You've got a load of resource and a load of skill and you need to sell it to make some money. And that's just what we do. you know if we're not delivering, we should be selling, and if we're not selling, we should be delivering, and yeah, you know, we' we'll, we'll 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 deal with whatever comes. and
0: there's many days where I should have gone for a run, but it's raining outside. I guess how do you create the conditions that people buy into that mentality?
1: I think it's the transparency of the simplicity of the business model. and it comes back to being self employed you know, How many months can you last without a client? most self employed consultants have a very clear idea of you know when the guillotine drops. And, you know, the, the, the cash runs out and uh, God, I'm going to have to go and get a proper job and, and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, you know, we we don't have that and we don't sort of, you know, transmit that or, or whatever. But it, it's not a difficult concept that actually if we've got six or seven people on the bench, we probably need to do some selling and have a bit of focus on that. That's not, uh, you know, and, and we're transparent. So we have an ERP system. Everyone has access to everything, every piece of data apart from salaries in that ERP system. So you know they know what, the, you know, what the, the predicted revenues are in coming months. They know what's in the pipeline. They know what stage it's at. And they can ring people. And you know, Because if you want to be self-managing, you want people to make good decisions, you need to give them good information and good data. So that's why you've got to have that transparency.
0: Actually, the other type of data, which I'd be interested to spend two minutes on, although I think we've covered quite a lot, you know, your point of pastoral care. When you say it, it makes a lot of sense. And I know, by the way, I feel bad, telling you things make sense because the whole idea here was i was meant to you were challenge, meant to rip this apart i was meant to challenge he's you he's not myself. doing well it's, it's, in my yeah it's coaches are shit is what i'm <laughs> i'm hearing well I, I guess there is let us let's, let's dive in with the problem statement and then let's go to the soft squidgy bit so with all this so the coaching model i think makes a lot of sense really believe in coaching i've seen the power of it myself and with others so why, to your point, do you paint your walls or do you get a painter? Well, if you want it done better, you get a painter in. So do you get someone who is a technician to be your line manager and your mentor, or do you get someone who's used to dealing with people? Because I don't know, I've never been put on a course about how to deal with people with relationship breakups, family crisis, illness, like all the stuff you just, life happens. But there's a really interesting piece of, you know, let's take cities, and this might not hold, so stop me, but Cities are renowned for being places where people self-organize. They're also renowned for being where people are the loneliest. Because actually in a world where everyone self-organizes, there can be a real sense of loneliness if either you're excluded or simply if it's just really transient. And something you might say a line manager does, it give you anchor. You know, if I'm in a team, you disagree, which I'm glad. But like, <laughs> if I'm in a team... I if have you're a-
1: lonely and your only friend is your line manager... <laughs> You've, All of it, you have
0: big you know, problems. Keep with the work context here. So, you know, I I I have let's say I'm this person, I have friends outside, but I mean I'm working at Hatmill 10 hours a day. I mean, has that ever happened? I guess how do you foster that sense of community and belonging where in a world where actually, you know, I can go to my coach, but I have no other connectedness beyond that?
1: Right. Okay. I guess the way I describe it in a visual way is if you imagine we're operating in a, in a dome, whether it's the Millennium Dome or the, um, uh, what's the place in Cornwall?
0: Uh, the Eden Project. Eden Project, the thank one. you.
1: Inside the dome is Hat Mill. On the floor of the dome are tens of tables. And tables can be a number of things. So a table could be a project, a client project. A table could be a community of practice. So all the automation specialists might go and sit around that table from time to time. A table might be our operating board um we've not talked about governance but maybe we could you we're know, really run out of time so the the way it works is you've got freedom to go and sit at whatever table within reason because you, you know but and when I say within reason it's not because someone's going to stop you it's because you need to make your own decisions around what's the best table for you to be sat at at that point in time you still make your own decision and you will live and die by the feedback that you get from choosing well, those a, the, tables
0: and there's a, the metaphor's interesting just because it's a much better version than my city one and i guess the you know, there'll be people listening to this breaking out in hives who might have gone to school. And like, to your point, you know, let's take the tables, like your secondary school or high school common room has 10 tables. And in theory, you can see what you want. But the popular kids sit over there and the sporty kids sit over there. And and actually, to your point, you know, the blessing and a curse with open feedback as you know, many of us saw in secondary school is anyone can give and anyone can receive. And And I guess, you know, how do you avoid those scenarios where you do have the, the cool kids or the uncool kids or the, you know, the in vogue kids or the, the alternative kids.
1: I don't see any of that, manif- you know, whether I'm blind to it or not, I don't know. I guess if we were to then say, right, go and sit on the table who, you know, the people you'd rather socialize with, then you would get little groups of people because then, you know, when we have our away days, we get together off site for three days, twice a year. Yes you know you do get some people who've not worked together but then they'll go and you have a natter and and, and catch up on because they've got those close and the, and those are the people that they ring you know from from time to time out there so you'll always have that i think there isn't an elitism though around what so you see it's not the cool kids and the geeks it's you know that's just who the groups are and, and and maybe that is because we do you know part of the recruitment is you know have you got some technical capability and you know are you absent of ego And are you able to, you know, have conversations, you know, with people at at many levels from a client point of view? Because we do need the ability to be able to go and get alongside guys and, and people picking in a warehouse and then the following week present to PLC boards. So you've got to have that ability to move around with different people. Just on that in terms of the selection process, our interviews we always do over, you know, maybe breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, out and about because we want the person to relax and feel like they're in a natural environment. We don't want them to be, you know, in a small room with three chairs around a circular table with someone grilling them because, you know, no one is themselves there. So part of Lelou's research showed that the are three tenets of teal. One is the self-management, which we've talked about a lot. Second is bringing your whole self to work. So not needing to put on a work persona. When you're at work compared to when you're at home, and the third is evolutionary purpose and being comfortable that the business may evolve relative to its environment and become different things over time.
0: And I think you've just answered where I was going to go, which is what do you look for in recruitment, which I assume is those three things. Yeah,
1: well, it's it's the it's the real person. It's someone who can rapidly build trust, or we can build trust in. So one of the things we do at at interviews, we, we want to hear the back, you know, the backstory of the person. That's not necessarily the career they've had. It's it's you know. Tell us who you are, not what you've done, and you know, that said, you know, we, we clearly want to know at one stage what have you done because you know, it's good to know that you're competent, but we also need to know, are you, you know, are you, are you a decent person? Are you going to fit in here? Are you going to fit in well? Are you going to be comfortable here? And I, I always say this to candidates as a, as a candidate, you know, I'm interviewing this is a bigger decision for you than it is for me, yeah, because I'll still be here and we'll still be, but you know, you're going to change jobs from wherever you are at the moment to come and join us. Moving jobs is a big step for anyone at any point. And therefore, it has to be a proper two-way conversation that they can grill me for possibly longer than maybe we we interview them for.
0: I think it's so often lost in the recruitment process, that, that two-way piece. Well,
1: absolutely. And you know, the farcical nature of recruitment is often... Yeah, and I've been to interviews like this where the employer or the prospective employer sits there saying, well, you convinced me why we should give you a job. I once worked with a guy who always made me laugh because he just had a different way of looking at things. And then whenever he got asked, why do you want this job? His answer was always, I don't because you just removed the power from them. They go, well, why are you here? You say, well, someone rang me and asked me if I wanted to come for an interview, so I thought I'd come and find out a bit more.
0: He just sort of t- totally text them down. So it's a brilliant response. I'm sure as others are listening to this, and I am, there's, there's a kind of essence here. So to your point of the Eden Project or you know wherever, and, and actually the Eden Project is probably a good example, is for these things to work, everything has to be, be in symbiosis so like the Eden project only works because there's the heating and the lighting and then, I guess interestingly to your analogy like the door policy is probably quite a big thing to your sure, it's a bigger decision for me but you don't want to let too many wrong people into the organization and I'm, I'm hopefully I hopefully wouldn't be a wrong one, but let's just say how have you found beyond I bring my whole self to work I'm used to things being open like, I reckon to take your challenge like if I went to a big consultancy People would say I take my whole self to work, so and I, you know, I. They say I, that because I they've been told to. But I guess that's the question. How do you, over the interviews you've done, for, you know, as your team's grown, how have you and What are the things that make you say you will fit in a teal organization? I know Hatmill is kind of intertwined, but what are those things that make you say yeah, you will fit in a teal organization versus you might fit somewhere but not in this teal model?
1: It, it's back to the, the transparency word, and you know, I guess in you know, possibly oversharing in terms of giving an insight into when they've not been at their best or when they've really screwed up not and not the answer to tell me a time when you've uh, you've not succeeded at something and someone's got a pre rehearsed example of it didn't work well but it all came out well because I did exit. it's like I don't want to hear all that pre rehearsed crap yeah tell us something that actually really was a problem and we don't you know but but you don't get into that by asking di- direct questions you get into that by having really open conversations and being really comfortable in terms of where you might wander with it, and if they're not willing to do that wandering with you, then actually you're going to struggle here. And, and quite often, my feedback to people who have been unsuccessful at interview, and I'll say it at the end of the interview, I don't feel like you know, I don't feel I've met the real Nick. You know, I think it feels like you're holding a load of stuff back. Yeah, you know, happy to sit here and carry on chatting if you want to share more, but at this stage, it, it'll be a no because.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm not still not sure who you are. I want us to turn to, and, and some might say it's the elephant in the room, some might not, but I want to turn to, I guess, you and particularly your role. Because, you know, if I go to your LinkedIn now, we're in a world where no one has titles. Everyone's a consultant. I think you know what's coming. And, you, <laughs> you know, you will have been asked this, I'm sure, but you are the CEO. I guess, how does that work? You know, is it just people are signing up for a benevolent dictatorship? You know, we're in a great world, but there is a God do you actually need to do anything? You know, or have you fashioned the perfect business where you know, people talk about working on and in? Like, Actually, you, know, you watch a lot of daytime telly and pop up on the odd Zoom call. Out. Why is there a CEO? And I guess, how does that fit into that kind of teal structure that you build?
1: So I guess my personal preference would be that there wasn't a CEO. I always see myself as, as one of the team and you know, choose to believe that or, or not. You know, it makes no odds to me. But if you, it, you come back to Lulu's research, his research suggests there always has to be someone that the book stops with on this. And I think it, it comes back to your point of if you've got two people and one's wanting to turn right and one's wanting to turn left, there has to be an ultimate point where if, if nothing can be done to resolve that, someone has to make a call. It's so rare. Yeah, I make very, very few decisions in my mind. In fact, bizarrely, I make more decisions around very, very minor things that sort of emerged, like such as, oh yeah, should we, should we, should we go on the, on the plane there, or should we go by train? I'm like, I don't care. But that, well, just you just decide, because no one else. I like, okay, fine. The the big stuff, everyone else is fine with. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sort of the uh, the minister of uh, pettiness or something in my role. But Lulu's observation is there has to be somewhere where, where the book stops. So I'm sort of it. We became employee owned two and a half years ago. So up till that point.
0: I've had other people talk about EOTs, how employee-owned, as in percentage-wise. 100%. So fully yeah. fully employee-owned. Yeah, guess. so
1: prior ownership was, was me and, and my wife, because you do that when you set up as a one-man band, possibly some tax reasons, I don't know. And what became clear, we had a couple of approaches in the previous year for, to be acquired. And what became clear in the very early stages of those conversations is that you know, they were conventional, conventionally run and operated consultancies, And I would have turned myself into the the world's largest hypocrite had I sold, cashed out, and gone, yeah, all that stuff I've been (laughs) preaching for years, it's been a a great ride. I've got some cash. You go and enjoy all the crap I told you that you wouldn't like. Couldn't really do that. So our FD said, have you considered employee ownership? I'd never heard of it uh, at the time. And as we start to explore it, it gives that beautiful sort of long-term segue in a controlled way without any... External investors or new buyers having any influence on how you work because you can easily get a private equity to back a management buyout who'll be like, "Ah, oh, I love the teal thing, yeah, yeah and do all this sort of thing, which is fine, then revenue drops by twenty percent Yeah, teal's a heap of shit we're going we 're going conventional. Yeah, you know, instantly you can imagine them throwing the switch, going, "That's it's been a lovely ride, but you know, you guys, you know." No, I'm assuming
0: Lulu you know, has different colours as well. So I assume yes. there is actually a physical yeah, it change. Starts to off,
1: that. it starts off with red, which is sort of the army and education and cavemen, or I don't know something, something like that. Way told sort of, you what you
0: think of the red model there, doesn't yeah, it? And, and that
1: sort of yeah, I was, and, and it sort of migrates through to more values-led business, which is our ambers and greens and things like that. Sort of Ben and Jerry's and. Yeah, you know, that sort of stuff is it becomes more values led um, through, to, and then tier is sort of seen as that self management. So EOT gave us that opportunity to be able to, for me, to realise some value out of the business because you know, by then it had it had grown and it was you know it's worth quite a bit. Yeah, you know, not going to live forever, and at some point, yeah, you know, when you've when you've created something of value, it's nice to be able to. Yeah, realize that, even if it is over an extended period of time relative to a buyout, and you know, secure the financial security of you know, me, my kids, and probably grandkids, and yeah, and you know, one of them having a major co-capital or something like that. Who knows? So we took that opportunity and at that time we also had an EMI scheme. So 20% of the value is also going back to the employees who were there at the time. Um, over this, you know, we've probably got about a seven-year payout period where we where we realise the value of that. And then once that's paid, then you know it becomes full profit share with the with the, with the employed team who are effectively are the beneficiaries of the trust um at, at that stage. And we we remain in control of our own destiny without any external influence saying, I really think you need a business development team. I really think you need to have some senior managers and et cetera, et cetera.
0: I'm a big believer in watch what people do, not what they say. And actually like like you highlight there, it's when cash is involved, it becomes very easy to see what people do. And and you know, I I don't want to cast aspersions on any, any private equity or other firms, but you are probably right that someone in the good times will love teal and very quickly go back to red. It might be an interesting question. You've probably thought of it, and Lulu has probably answered it. I, I feel, I don't know if there's a shrine to him in, or well, there isn't an office, so there is no shrine to him in the office. But in that world, you have to move on. Well, at some point, you might move on. Let's, you know, to your point, seven years, there'll be a transition. How do you decide the next buck stopper?
1: I have absolutely no
0: idea. <laughs> There's a round two in 10 years, isn't there, where we find that out? There
1: could be. There could be. It's, it, long term, it's probably you know, a bit of a challenge for us. I mean, we're trying different things at the moment that might give an indication to what it might look like. I, I have no idea. So, for example, operations board that we had to put in place as part of being an EOT to show that I'd given up overall control of the business, which you have to do as part of a, an EOT. We've got two non-execs and we've got two employees that sit on the board, which isn't apparent. I thought that was normal for an EOT. I went to an, EOT, an employee ownership event. Apparently very few people have employees on the board, even when it's employee owners. Right, it does strike
0: you as odd, doesn't it? And the names. Seems best. a
1: bit weird. Maybe it's just for the tax. I don't know. But we put two, two employees. And, and those two employees, it's very much like a, a mayoral um, appointment in that the team vote for two, for two employees and you come and join the ops board for two years. So it's not a position of status; it's a position of task and activity and responsibility for that period. Then you step down, and two more people are voted on. So, so it continues. You we know, were avoiding anyone else having that sort of that sort of seniority role or seem to have it. They are there as representatives of of, of the rest of the team and, and and operate in that way. But again, most of the reason I understand from that most employee owned businesses don't have, you know, members of the of the of the, of the colleagues or the staff on the board is a fear of transparency well we talk about things there that we wouldn't want to get out really why why would you do that you know just tell people they're adults you are employ if you're not employing adults you probably need to get sent to prison because child labor is illegal now but you're employing adults so you know absolutely manage the messaging and and be, and be clear and, and explain things but you know like come on we're not we're not in the 1800s anymore
0: I'm conscious of time, and I, I had parked this one, but I feel you've dangled it enough times that I do want to ask. It's, it's a really practical question, but again, us consultants love practicality. So all of that makes perfect sense, I guess, and I try not to take us too far to old ground, but take people problems. So to your point, like business, you know, cash flow, et cetera, right? feels perfectly normal being transparent on that. I guess to try and bring this to life, because again, it's just a, it would niggle at me if I was listening and we've got this far and hadn't answered it. How do you approach that? So Joe or Jane has a people-related problem, I don't know, ill-health, family member, et cetera. How is that supported in a way that is, has the right people involved, but to your point, isn't broadcast to everyone? Or maybe it is.
1: So we don't really have any policies in that area because we don't believe that you could write a policy or policies that would legislate for the wide variety of stuff that happens to team members. You just, you, you, you're just going to be giving a load of money to a load of solicitors who are then go, oh, and then once something crops up, oh, yeah, we didn't think about that option, so just forget it. Again, we leave it back down to the individual. So I guess something simple like, let me give you a couple of examples. So a bereavement policy. Some places have a bereavement policy. Well, if it's a parent, you can have a week. And if it's, you know, God forbid, a, a child or whatever, then you can have it, you know, two weeks or whatever. But if it's an auntie, you can you can have two hours for the funeral. Well, who's to say that you weren't brought up by your auntie and you hated your parents and you moved out? And it's just, a, it's you know, we, we, we're just making these bizarre generalisations to try and create a policy that means it'll be fair and equitable for everyone. Well, we're employing adults back to the same point. Let them decide how much time do you need off, you know? If you were brought up by your grandma and, and and she passes away, and you know that's the most devastating thing that could ever happen to you, take whatever time you need off for that circumstance, and trust the people to do it. In reality, what happens is people repay that trust and go, you know, no problem, you know, and 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 manage it. No one, no one really takes the piss if you're recruiting the right people, and 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 you've got the right ethos, people behave in the right way. What we've tended to do, I was going to give you let me give you the other example, and I, need to, and I hesitate to bring this example up, but let's say, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen is a child gets diagnosed with a terminal illness, you know, as one of the teams. They've got two years to live, you know, what do you do with that person? We would all like to think that a good employer would then go, look, you are, you know, living your worst possible nightmare, take the two years off, you know. You, you know, you, you've, you've literally got you know, a load of shit in front of you. Go and take the two years off. We'll carry on paying you. And the rest of the team will be happy to support that because they know that if that crap had happened to them, that's what they would like to also happen to them. It's a really rare occurrence. We don't need to legislate for it, but we're going to behave in the right way because we're a single group and we're going to look after each other without it all starting to sound like socialism. And that's what, you know, in that example, that's what we do. Because you know, it's not their fault. You know, it's not oh, well, actually, you've only got 13 weeks and then uh, then we're going to put you on statutory. Oh, brilliant. So I've now got, you know, 18 months of the shittest part of my life and you're pulling the rug from under me and I'm going to lose, you know, I've got to worry about how we pay the mortgage. Well, that's just bollocks. You know, we've got the resources to be able to look after people. So why wouldn't you? So that's the people stuff that, you know, how we'd approach it.
0: No, no, I'm glad I did open it up, Simon, because I and I appreciate it was a very sharp tangent, but it answers the question and does away with the need for a committee to discuss people issues. Infers there are decisions that need to be made, and and you know I I think that second example, like you say, is very powerful because you know, God forbid that doesn't happen to anyone, but do to others and as you would want done to yourself. I'm sure that's a religious quote from somewhere, but I guess it comes back to you know people watch and observe, and and if you do it for one. They do it for others. And likewise, you know, to your point of the community you're building, the village or town you're building, if people see you do that for Joe blogs well, actually then if Jane Doe says, oh, I think this place is a bit shit, someone's probably going to say, well, do you remember what they did for Joe? I'm going to bring a sharp back to the CEO handover. And again, you might not have an answer for this because this isn't your world, but I think we've covered a ton about your model and hopefully you feel we've grilled a little bit in there, albeit I love, you know, it's clear you've thought all of this through. One question I have, you know, if someone's listened to this and they want to do this model, in a world to your point where it's you and your wife, because that's what people do, and I'm assuming your wife's not involved in the business day to day. So you are a you, know, you are the CEO or the, the, the person who founded it. A lot of our listeners will be in partnerships or, you know, they'll, they've founded a business with two, three to 10 other people for no other reason than that's what they did. How does this work where there are more than one of you? Does someone still have to become that person where the buck stops? Like, that's what I'm... If there's two, let's take two for simplicity. If there is two founding partners, does one have to become the CEO? Because otherwise, I assume you just create a tension of like there's politics at the very top.
1: Yeah, you probably would create that, that that politics. I think in in most things that we've done, I think the only answer is well, give it a go and see what happens. Yeah, it might work. It might. You, you can sit there pontificating and theorizing over it for six months, but you know if there's two of you, give it a go and you know make sure you're aligned. Make sure you're not overruling each other. Make sure that not only you guys, the two people, have have read Reinventing Organizations, but buy a copy for everyone in the organization and talk about it a lot and, and get people to, you know, get some external coaches in the, you know, and do do some of the stuff that's worked well for us and figure out. And it might work. And it might be that actually it, bring, it brings out some insurmountable problem that you then need to figure out how you're going to deal with it. But you, the only way to really find out is to, to is to jump in.
0: I think a great place for us to start to draw to a close because I've got two last questions. I'm going to guess the answer to the first one, but I I don't want to assume. And I'm fascinated about the answer to the second, which I now I'm going to have to drastically change knowing your view on grades because I am afraid I've perpetuated that across my podcast. So the first one is books and I don't want to assume the answer. So I'm going to ask the question, what is the book or books that have? Had the biggest impact, or you have gifted most to people, and why is that?
1: Um, so obviously, number one is is reinventing organization. There are two versions. Just If you're interested in finding out a little bit about this, get the illustrated version first. That'll take about an afternoon to read. If you get the the, the full version, it will take about a month to get through the first third because it's turgid around the history of organisations. The second two thirds are actually quite readable. So, you know, I might be cheating. Is that one book or two? It's possibly, no, possibly, keep, possibly I, two.
0: And if that is one, what is the book after that?
1: The book after that, probably a couple. Uh, one is the E-Myth Revisited which is very much focused on how to work on your business, not in it. And there's some, some really nice, simplistic ways of looking at a case study of, I think it's a lady running a pie shop in Canada or something. Yeah, I
0: remember the book well. Right.
1: And it's a really, he's got some fantastic, just lovely, simplistic things and a simplistic way of looking at it. And then the third one would be Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss.
0: Ooh, I've heard Chris Voss a lot. I haven't fully read the book.
1: Yeah. So I, I did it. I I'm I'm a bad reader. So normally I do audible and listen to it in the car and that was so good i then went and bought the book because you can't flick to the pages if you got it on order because when did he say this he just can't find it so i then then bought the book uh, we have a book club at hat mills so, and that was one of the books that uh, that someone introduced but yeah he's the Darren brown of negotiation and you read some of the stuff he's in and then you say this and then you say this you think well that's never gonna work and then you go somewhere and you say it and they just do exactly what you, and you're like wow I'm literally doing mind control.
0: I've got a bit through the book, a bit to your point actually. I think I got it on Kindle, and I'm more of an Audible. But the thing that stuck with me in like the early chapters, he talks about like getting hot, I don't know, armed people behind, from behind a door, and just spent the whole time saying it feels like you know. If you say feels, you aren't accusing anyone. Like someone, it feels like you've got a problem. I, and to your point, it's it's amazing how that stuff works. Yeah, it's great stuff. I think three great books and three very different books as well. Yeah, I think. I'm not going to open any more of those because I try not to at these questions, but three fantastic books. And then the last question, and actually I am going to make this easy for myself and I'm just going to put it in years. So you have three people in front of you. One person has just entered the consulting industry, zero years experience. One person is at five, four, five, six, seven years of experience. And one person is 12 years in, I'm going to say. What is your one piece of advice to each of those life stages in consulting?
1: Oh, interesting. I, I'm trying to think, is the advice any different to any of them, really? And I think it's largely around, you generally get out what you put in, and it depends which consultancy. Are you working in a conventional consultancy or a, an enlightened, not an enlightened, that's a bit egotistical, it? Um, or, or a, you know, an, an unconventional one? But certainly I think you do get out what, what you put in in most cases if you've got good people around you and you don't get become a, a, a victim of it. I think in maybe in the first year, find some really good experienced people to work alongside. Um, I've had the benefit of working with some great people. My first consulting role, I worked alongside a guy called Trevor Mead, who was just, he was Yoda-like in terms of the stuff he shared with me and yeah how things should work. He was a former construction director with Langs, and I owe Trevor a massive amount in terms of the guidance he gave me in those first three or four years of consulting. So, uh, no, I'm very grateful to him. And I, I, that, that would be my, certainly my recommendation for people who are just getting a hang onto the shirt tails of someone who's really, really sharp and, and bright. I think in the, the mid-range, probably figure out what you enjoy doing. You know, because you've probably by then had a bit of experience. You've probably sampled a few different project types and and things like that, and work out. You don't necessarily need to have a specialism. I mean, you could be a, you know, a generalist within an area, but work out what you get the most enjoyment out of. Because you probably spend, we spend a lot of time at work, so find something you enjoy doing, or or try doing something else. And I think you know, in terms of the twelve years, if you've been doing it twelve years, you probably realise that it is for you, or or there's some reason why you can't get out of it. I don't know what that might be. But at 12 years, it's probably make sure you've got the work-life balance right. And I don't like using work-life balance. Let me call it work-home balance because the implication is that work is bad and life is good, whereas actually life should be good and it should be balanced between work and home. And and, and it's important. I think we can start using that sort of terminology. But it's not all about the hamster wheel yes, we all need money and we all need, you know, but actually get a balance of, you know, don't miss your kids growing up. Yeah. You know, I missed a big chunk of mine and, and regret it. And, you know, lots of people say, you know, you, no one on the deathbed says, oh, I wish I'd been at work a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I can't put work down, but I really enjoy it. And you know, it's a big, it's a big part of me, but make sure that you, you've got that, that happy balance in, in whatever you're doing.
0: Simon, I think some great advice, and I completely agree with you by the way, on the work life peace work home work home exactly well i agree (laughs) with you on the problem with work life and yes the the immediate inference that work is a negative and yeah that isn't the case for everyone uh some people it is home some people it's work some people to your point those things blur but that i think is a brilliant place for us to finish so I've really enjoyed this. After we record, you will tell me whether I grilled you enough or not. But for anyone who's listened and wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about Hatmill, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? You can
1: find out more about Hatmill at our website, which is www.hatmill.com. And I'm on LinkedIn, Simon Dixon working at Hatmill.
0: Amazing. Well, we'll put links to both in the show notes. So anyone who's listening can find that on the website or on the podcast app. And all that's left to say, Simon, is thank you very much. Thank you for traveling down to Bath. No mean feet. Very much appreciated. No problem.
1: I've come out in hives. I've come so far south.
0: <laughs> well, as I said earlier, our southerners are very polite, so I have to compliment you for coming this far. But thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week.
1: Norris, no Thanks, Nick. I've really enjoyed
0: it. Cheers, Simon. Today's episode is brought to you by create engage the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy now for long-time listeners you will probably already know who we are you may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast but for those of you who don't here is a short introduction at create engage we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy a strategy that will resonate with your target clients and then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them, but instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and
1: have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already.
0: One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said, that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So, from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face, and uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So, if you're looking for an agency, that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you you can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing i hope you enjoyed today's episode of climbing consulting If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.